Hey now, we are getting over and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times, data with your Wednesday Night Wars edition of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. That is right, the Silver King is back once again to break down every single thing that happened Wednesday night and Tuesday night this week actually in NXT and on AEW Dynamite got an extra hour of AEW late night Dynamite from Tuesday night to throw in and there is an absolute load of wrestling to talk about unfortunately we come into this week's show basically looking at both NXT and AEW having a down week in terms of the product that was put on television from the last couple of shows. The last two weeks, in fact, for NXT and AEW, I have roundly praised the shows, the match quality. They, I think they've been operating top tier, top level recently. This week, I did think was a step back for both, but no surprise that that came along with both NXT and AEW suffering some string of coronavirus, COVID-19 related uh, outbreak and absences. There were a number of people unavailable for both shows that affected the booking of the shows, the scheduled matches, and ultimately what we got on our screen. So we will get to all of that momentarily. Before we do, a couple quick notes for you. First, you need to go ahead, follow the Silver King on Twitter at Silverstein Adam. But more important than that, go and follow this podcast on Twitter at Getting Overcast. The numbers have been growing significantly over the last couple of weeks. Let's keep ramping them up. Please go and follow the show if you have a Twitter account. And I know you have a podcast account somewhere, whether it's Apple or Google or now on Amazon Music, Spotify, wherever you are listening to the Getting Over Wrestling podcast, please head over there, drop us a five-star rating and review Let us know how much you love the show. Let these systems know how much you love the show. And hopefully that will lead to greater placement on their platforms, which means more listeners, which means more cool stuff that we can do for getting over. Before we get into today's show, one more note. I wanted to talk a little bit about our schedule. So this week we will have instant analysis of WWE Clash of Champions Sunday night immediately after the pay-per-view is off the air. Do not forget, we already have our WWE Clash of Champions Ultimate Preview that was published on Tuesday of this week, so go back and listen to that if you have not already. It is a longer show, but there are timestamps in every single episode of Getting Over. That way, you can move back and forth, especially if you don't have a lot of time right before the pay-per-view, and for some reason you missed the show, which, if that's the case, shame on you, but at least you can listen to the Ultimate Preview portion and hit everything else Later. So what's going to be coming up on getting over going forward? Some interesting news here. On Tuesday, after the Raw, after Clash of Champions, we will have another WWE episode of the show. We'll talk about everything that happened this Friday night on SmackDown that doesn't really have to do with the pay-per-view, the fallout from the show on Monday, and we will have a special interview with a big-time WWE superstar, multi-time champion, will be joining us on next Tuesday's show. And then I'm going to have to figure out how we're going to do the rest of the week. But my guess as of right now is that next Thursday, we will have our NXT TakeOver Ultimate Preview along with a full review of AEW Dynamite. So we should have a couple loaded episodes of Getting Over coming up for you ahead of two WWE pay-per-views, for lack of a better term, heading back to back. And we do have some big 
episodes of AEW Dynamite coming up, including their anniversary show in a few weeks. So the wrestling is not stopping while all of this is going on. We have G1 Climax 30 happening. I have not seen a second of it yet, but I do hope to very soon. One other thing, and we'll get into everything right now. Uh, I will be operating the show today and maybe even next week a little bit with a limited soundboard. I know you guys love all the sound drops that we do. My phone Uh, My iPhone bricked completely last night. I was trying to update it to iOS 14. The thing just crapped the bed. Uh, I tried everything I could do to restore it. I was unfortunately unable to, to update it. I mean, Uh, I had to restore the thing from scratch back to like March because I'm an idiot and didn't back up my phone, which I probably should do every month. Anyway, uh, so I lost basically half the sound drops. So we will be operating um, at limited capacity and hopefully we make it work. What a little freak. What a weirdo. Update your phones at least monthly. Please listen to me. Okay, let's get into everything that happened Wednesday night in the world of professional wrestling. And we will start with NXT, where it was obvious that this reported COVID-19 outbreak, for lack of a better term, in NXT slash the Performance Center was going to drastically affect the show. There were no trainees in the crowd, which brought back that deafening silence of these pandemic era shows that we've mostly suffered through. And WWE did go ahead and use some sort of ambient noise. It worked on the entrances for cheering and booing. But during the matches, it was far too low to otherwise reduce the silence and blackness, the emptiness that we got from the rest of the building. This was not a great overall episode of NXT, but the ambiance definitely affected my viewing of it, especially when I've been used to the WWE Thunderdome and for NXT a relatively full crowd of PC trainees, you know, making noise and banging on that glass. And for this to be a stark contrast to that, despite some matches that really would have gotten pops from those wrestlers, it was kind of a little tough to sit through. But that doesn't mean it was a bad show. It wasn't. It just wasn't a great show like we've gotten from NXT over the last two weeks. Let's start with the main event, the Gauntlet Eliminator. The idea of this match was great, but the fact that It got to four competitors in the ring at once, never really made it feel like a gauntlet match, even though people were able to enter in different times. Obviously, it was an eliminator because that's how it was booked, but it just felt more like a fatal four-way elimination match or something rather than a gauntlet-style match. For me, if you want to do a match like that, maybe you need to do eight people. That way, you never get more than four, but there's a, a continuous circulation of different people coming in and out. So I, I think... The concept was good. Execution of the match style maybe was not. We started with Kyle O'Reilly against Kushida and Bronson Reed as no one was eliminated during the one-on-one. And you have Velveteen Dream slide and hit the Dream Valley driver on Kushida, which of course means they're going to be feuding soon, maybe at the takeover. But the storyline made sense considering what Kushida recently did to Dream and how they've been going back and forth. So he's the first one eliminated. Bronson Reed gets that elimination. Then we move to Kyle O'Reilly against Bronson Reed, Timothy Thatcher, and Cameron Grimes as Thatcher entered before commercial break, and then Grimes entered like immediately afterward. This match was not bad per se, but it felt tiring with four guys all being left in there and 10 minutes still to go in the show. Reed, he did Road Warrior Animals Power Slam. That was a really cool spot. I should pause here because I did not say it at the top of the show. Rest in peace to Road Warrior Animals, certainly. He, he died uh, at, at 60, Hawk at 46, you know, multiple years ago, a long time ago. 
Uh, greatest tag team in professional wrestling history. Full stop. Greatest tag team in the history of professional wrestling. And for both of them to be gone, obviously an extremely sad moment. And it's my fault for not bringing it up at the beginning of the show. I, I took my notes. Unfortunately, I'm, I'm doing the show all in one shot here. And I did um, screw up and not mention it earlier. So that is my fault. Nevertheless, it was a nice tribute for Bronson Reed to do Road Warrior Animals Power Slam. It was a cool spot. And it was a big singles moment here for O'Reilly to take advantage of the missed tsunami from Reed, put that knee into his back, and then get the win. So O'Reilly right there, he's getting a singles win. You're like, oh, this is pretty cool. Pretty good booking, right? Then we get Grimes do that sloppy running attack and dive. It looked really strange after the submission spot. But the finish to this match totally made up for the rest of it being a little janky, you know, for lack of a better term. Uh, O'Reilly folded up Thatcher for a pinfall after some good technical wrestling. It was great to see O'Reilly get that opportunity and wrestle Thatcher and Kushida that way because it's clear that he is extremely good, you know, technical wrestler, has some MMA chops, you know, with him. And he was also booked as a face the entire match. So him getting over clean on Thatcher made a ton of sense. Grimes took away O'Reilly's advantage after that fall with the Caven, but O'Reilly got his foot on the rope. And then they did that awesome Spanish fly style power slam, body slam. I don't even know exactly what you call it. The O'Reilly Grimes match would have been real hot in front of a crowd, meaning the, the final two in this match. Crowd would have gone absolutely apeshit for it, especially once Grimes missed that second cave-in and then immediately tapped out from the heel hook. The fact that Kyle O'Reilly is going to be fighting Finn Balor for the NXT title at a takeover is just crazy considering he's been a tag team wrestler in WWE throughout his entire career, you know, in NXT to this point. But the thing about Kyle O'Reilly is he's legitimately got it all. Great character work, very good promo, obviously stellar in the ring. He was a Ring of Honor champion who, by the way, won the title from and lost it to Adam Cole. He was also a PWG champion who, by the way, beat Adam Cole for the title and then lost it to Roderick Strong. So all of it kind of coming together based on his history. So this is a long time coming for him in NXT, and I'm extremely excited to see him get this chance. I don't know if it's very similar to a Jey Uso situation where they wanted to have a takeover. They weren't sure what they were going to do from a direction standpoint with a major storyline. So they just wanted to have this match and give someone like Kyle O'Reilly an opportunity. Certainly, I do not think he's going to beat Finn Balor for the title. This thing's been a hot potato for the last couple of months. You can't have another title change. But O'Reilly Finn Balor on a takeover is going to bang. I mean, you're talking legitimate potential five-star match. It's really going to be such good shit. I'm extremely excited for it. The show opened with the number one contender women's battle royal. And ahead of this match, you saw Candice LeRae attack Tegan Knox. It's a good way to continue their feud. Uh, based on the match graphic and then looking at who was in the ring, the only person I noticed who was advertised but did not compete was Zia Lee. They overinflated the competitors in the match so that Rhea Ripley and Raquel Gonzalez could get a bunch of eliminations. Though they ended up eliminating each other anyway, which was the right booking, and it is a necessary feud between the two. You know, they're going to have to make a decision at some point. Are they going to just call Rhea Ripley up despite her being young and have Raquel Gonzalez get over on her? Or 
Are they going to basically use Raquel Gonzalez to continue rehabilitating Rhea Ripley? Not that she was extremely down in the dumps, but she did lose the title to Charlotte Flair. Then she was on the losing side of the triple threat match when Io Shirai won the title. So you do wonder what they are going to be doing long-term with her, but she just beat Mercedes Martinez. So if she's going to have beat Mercedes Martinez and then go into a feud with Raquel Gonzalez, my hope is that she would win that feud and get elevated in a pretty strong way and maybe ultimately be the challenger for Io Shirai's title at, let's say, a December takeover if they decide to do something like that. Or a December episode of NXT television, which I believe I said last week, would be a good situation to do a Shirai um, Ripley match for the title and have her win it exactly one year later from when she won it the first time. Uh, but as far as the rest of this battle royal, I did like the spots with Casey Kat and Zaro, though they probably would have been better if they saved them for an actual Royal Rumble. But once she got eliminated, that left a final three of Candice LeRae, Dakota Kai, and Shotzi Blackheart. It was expected that LeRae would win before the match even began, and it was clear she would be the winner when you got the final three because Kai and Blackheart were the last two challengers. So the finish on the stairs that we saw, that was really unique and inventive. So the end of the match was definitely better than the rest. But with no noise and a lack of exciting action in the match itself, ultimately, this will be a forgettable battle royal. You saw Tommaso Ciampa defeat Jake Atlas, and it was nice to see Atlas get some offense in there at the beginning compared to their first go around. But this had to be another strong victory for Ciampa. That's what we got. He refused to cover him after hitting Willow's Bell and then hit a new version of his fairy tale ending finisher where he flipped Atlas onto his back at the end. That was really cool. That's a good short match and Ciampa's looking really aggressive. I don't know exactly what they're going to end up doing with him, but, you know, clearly they have plans to continue building him strong and, and, and that's a good thing. We'll move to Ridge Holland, who had a vignette earlier in the show. This guy totally looks the part, and it's been so far so good for him in the ring, uh, the opportunities that he's gotten to show some character, show some wrestling ability. He seems to me to have a really high ceiling, and I hope that Regal actually gets an opportunity to spend some one-on-one time with him, because that would be a really good pairing. And then later in the show, you saw Ridge Holland defeat this guy, Antonio DeLuca, you know, my notes here, I just, I, Holland's awesome. Maybe I'm overrating him, but I'm just impressed every single time I see him in the ring. The Northern Grit finisher that he's doing, the Brainbuster Slam, for lack of a better term, that was awesome. I loved the violent headbutts in the corner, the release overhead suplex. I just am of the belief that Ridge Holland has a really bright future in NXT and WWE, and I feel like they're just on the tip of the iceberg here, which is really cool. We saw a tag team match, Roderick Strong and Danny Burch defeat Fabian Eichner and Raul Mendoza. And this is where the show got a little convoluted, but it was convoluted at least in kayfabe, which is so rare that they acknowledge that. So basically, my guess is a couple of the competitors in this match were not able to compete and wrestle because of potential COVID-19 positives. So if that's the case, they needed to figure out a way to continue doing this number one contendership storyline or feud for the tag team titles, but without number members of the tag teams, right? So they did like an algorithm segment where they had Fandango come up with this way that a number one contender could be determined. He's telling William Regal, hey, you're going to have all these mixed teams and then the members of the mixed teams are going to fight each other next week. And then the winner of that match will end up being the number one contenders. Regal's telling him not to do a stupid English accent. 
but then he ultimately needs Denny Birch to translate for him in like a Cockney accent anyway. That was just hysterical, man. Like that's really good comedy. And they made, um, you know, chicken salad out of chicken shit here because look who wasn't there, right? Tyler Breeze wasn't there. And a lot joking wild wasn't there. And all these other guys, the other members of these teams, and that doesn't mean they all had COVID. It could have only been one. That, so therefore they needed to, you know, do this a little bit differently, but chances are it was more than one. And they figured out a way to give us a storyline that was pretty interesting. So, you know, eventually they did get a number one contender for takeover. We got four damn good wrestlers uh, in action in the ring. It was entertaining the match and the combined finish of strong hitting the knee with Birch nailing that draping cutter from the top rope on Raul Mendoza. That was a great move. It just was not too much to get excited about given the circumstances. But now it seems like next week, I think we're going to get Roderick Strong against Danny Birch and the winner, their team, will fight Brizongo for the titles either at TakeOver or another event or another TV NXT show or something. I don't know. That's what I'm taking from it. And, you know, like I said, they made chicken salad out of chicken shit. It was not a good situation. They made it entertaining. So good for them on that. We had promos from Damian Priest and Johnny Gargano. Obviously, William Regal made this North American title match out of nowhere, really, um, off television without Gargano even specifically challenging Priest. He did say last week that he was going to be watching Priest and Thatcher in that match, but I'm not sure why they couldn't have done a segment at the beginning of the show to at least set up a challenge between Gargano and Priest to say, hey, I want that title. I want an opportunity. We have takeover coming up give me a chance. You know, it just seemed pretty sloppy. And I don't like when they do things off television like that, when it's very easy to do them on television. You got a quick promo from Damian Priest. It was fine. Gargano was coaching up Austin Theory before his match. That was pretty cool. We had Damian Priest defeat Austin Theory in a non-title match. This was a really good match on the show. Lots of awesome work. I would actually venture to say it was the best match on the show, top to bottom. Theory started really hot with the standing moonsault. Priest answered back with that awesome uh, ripcord flatliner. Theory later on hit the blue thunderbomb. Priest hit outside, hit him with the cyclone kick, which is great. He did that move from the top rope, I believe, last week. That was fantastic. And then he did the razor's edge into the ring apron, the hardest part of the ring. Great spot. And then, of course, Damian Priest hit the reckoning for the one, two, three. As I said, this was a really good TV match and a nice surprise because up until this point, the show had started really slow. Then you had Gargano attack Priest after the match, fire an arrow into the North American title, I guess aiming for it ahead of their match. We saw a brawl backstage with both of them, Io Shirai and Candice LeRae, which means we're going to get a mixed tag team match next week on the Go Home Show. I am all for that. Johnny Gargano and Io Shirai in the ring at the same time like my head might explode watching that match. That's incredible. So I hope there is some actual mixed action or Damian Priest like puts Io Shirai on his shoulders and she does a moonsault. I don't know, but that match can get crazy and I'm really excited for it next week. We then got a really interesting vignette, a tease of a return of some kind. I'm not a big video game guy. And when I did play video games, it was like Street Fighter and Smash Brothers, you know, and, and Blitz and Madden and NCAA college football. So this seemed like some type of Call of Duty style 360 camera player vignette, game player vignette of teasing someone returning to NXT who used to be there back in the day and maybe held 
the old version of one of the titles, the men's title or the women's title, because they were in that glass case. And if you ever go into the WWE Performance Center, which this is not like a Barry Horowitz thing, but I've been there a couple of times, they do have encased in glass um, the old NXT titles. I don't know if it's the main ones they used or just you know replicas of them, but they are there for people to see. So I'm not exactly sure who it's going to be. And I don't really want to speculate on it because I want to be surprised. It's very rare in wrestling that you can legitimately be shocked by something. And any old school NXT champion coming back, and I could run out a list of names here, some of them make zero sense. Some of them make a lot of sense. And I don't know who it's going to be. And I don't know if it's going to be a, a man or a woman. I don't think it's going to be a woman just because the women's division is stacked right now. The men's division, the singles division maybe needs a little bit of juice. So that's where I would lean. But man, like I'm really legitimately excited for it. And they're claiming that they're going to basically be making that return at TakeOver next Sunday. Maybe that comes at the end of the show, right after the Finn Balor-Kyle O'Reilly match. If that is the case, and it is a return that, let's just say, is going to go face-to-face with Finn Balor, well, I have a really interesting idea of who that might be, and I think people's heads would explode if that happened. So yeah, I'm not going to speculate, but I'm excited. It was a good vignette. What they want, what, what vignette should accomplish when it's something like this, a teaser, is to get people speculating and excited. 100% worked. I am excited and I'm speculating. So nailed it right there. We saw Swerve challenge Santos Escobar again. This was totally a fine promo from Swerve. Direct, accurate with the storyline. I hope they put this match on the TakeOver show after not putting it on the last one because it totally deserves the spotlight. And this is a quick build show as it is. So I'm not exactly sure why they would keep it off again. But give me Santos Escobar, give me Swerve, and give me them on a takeover, and honestly, I wouldn't mind a title change either because Escobar at some point does need to advance past the Cruiserweight title into the North American Championship or even the NXT Championship. So overall, you know, it was a decent episode of NXT. Um, You know, a grade from a grading perspective, maybe a 6.5 or a 7 out of 10, which is not bad by any means, but the level of NXT television that we've seen over the last two weeks, this was certainly a step down. And the same thing does go for AEW Dynamite, which the last two weeks, not that it needed to win me over, but it was really getting me to buy into their product over the last couple of weeks. Whereas this week, it kind of turned me off a little bit again, but more than that, more, way more importantly than that, I just didn't think night uh, they were strong episodes. And when I say episodes, I'm talking about AEW Dynamite on Wednesday and AEW Late Night Dynamite Tuesday night at like around midnight, they did a special one-hour show after the NBA playoffs. So before we get to Dynamite on Wednesday, a very quick review of that Tuesday show. You had Scorpio Sky defeat Ben Carter. And like many others, I was really impressed by Carter. This guy is insanely athletic, no doubt about it. But I thought this match really showed Scorpio Sky's quality of work. He was the ring general in this thing. And he did an incredible job getting this young guy over. I saw people screaming, on Twitter, like big time names, Ben Carter must be signed after this match. And that's true. A company should be signing this guy, whether it's AEW or WWE or Impact or Ring of Honor or whoever. This guy should be under contract somewhere. But do I think people needed to be screaming this from the rooftops after the match because the guy's really athletic? 
No, not exactly. I think I don't think he's as of right now some transcendent talent worthy of exaggerated praise. But will he be one day? I think that's very possible. You know, it, it, the guy looked great, so I'm not trying to downplay it. But everyone going like ape shit over this guy. We've seen guys do this before. Like we've seen really athletic wrestlers and sometimes all they are is are really athletic wrestlers. We didn't get a promo. We didn't get anything from him to kind of say, this is a can't miss guy along the lines of when Ricky Starks showed up where you said, holy crap, they got to sign this guy. Or Eddie Kingston made such a strong debut on the mic where you said, you know what? They don't really have a lot of extremely strong veteran mic guys like Eddie Kingston. They need to get this guy in. I'm not saying they shouldn't sign Ben Carter. I'm not saying WWE shouldn't already be calling him trying to sign him for the Performance Center. They both should. No question about it. But the way people were acting Tuesday night, it was like this guy was like the next coming of The Rock. And he's just, he's not that. But he is a very good wrestler. We saw Anna Jay defeat Brandy Rhodes. This was a WWE Divas match in an AEW ring. There was that face plant on the ring apron. That was decent. But outside of that, nothing of value in the match. It went on way too long for talents of this caliber. And then in the main event, we saw Sean Spears defeat Matt Slidell. This was a respectable match. Two pros going at it. Nothing insanely notable to me, but really good, consistent action. The crowd was like chanting AEW and saying, this is awesome during the match. No, I mean, you should have been doing that during Scorpio Sky and Ben Carter. That was the best match on the show. This was good. Commentary really tried to make it feel like a big deal, but it just didn't feel like a big deal. I did chuckle at Seidel wiping off the condensation from the top rope before hitting the Meteora. That was a nice callback to All Out and him slipping. And then Spears ultimately won with the loaded glove. I'm glad he got a win. You know, that's that's good, but I really don't have much else to say on this match. So with that, we'll move to AEW Dynamite, the real AEW Dynamite, on Wednesday. And like NXT, AEW clearly had a number of absences from their show on Wednesday. Most notable and obvious among them were Lance Archer, who said publicly on Twitter that he tested positive from COVID-19. Also not there, though, obviously, was Brian Cage, Nick Jackson, and Jake Hager, all of whom otherwise would have been on TV involved in segments. Wardlow also was not there. So when you see other characters on TV and, and the people that they're normally with aren't showing up, that's usually a good indication that something has happened. Uh, there were clearly more as well. So those are just the names that I saw, you know, noticed um, from watching the show. I found it interesting that NXT's issue was reported as an outbreak while AEW's was reported as individuals have COVID, members of the AEW roster. And it's like, why are you, that's, it's a weird distinction to make. It's almost like on one hand, you're trying to blame WWE, which by the way, does PCR tests now. And on the other hand, trying not to blame AEW, despite reporting that all these people were at an AEW taping in September together. So, you know, you would think that maybe something slipped through with AEW. And by definition, that would literally make it an outbreak. But nevertheless, look, we've talked numerous times from WWE and we crapped all over WWE for the lack of testing and the absolute horrendous, you know, conditions and decisions that they had made at the beginning of this pandemic. Um, both companies now are testing. They think they are doing a good job, but in any testing scenario, you're going to get false positives and false negatives. And it seems like my guess is that there were some false negatives in both situations. Someone came in who was sick and infected other people. It's really unfortunate. It sucks. This is the risk we take. I think when it comes to wrestling and sports, you know, 
I still believe that I wish everything had legitimately, truly shut down to the level where this totally got under control. There were circumstances that did not allow that to happen um, from things that were even larger than sports. But given the situation we're in now, sports do seem, as long as they are testing frequently, to be able to be played somewhat safely. The problem is the sports that are succeeding with that are professional sports, NFL, uh, MLB. They had some issues at the beginning. They seem to be okay. NBA operating in the bubble. They're all working out. College football, where people have to be on campus. Wrestling, where people are flying in from all over the country and going out and partying and doing things like that. They're struggling right now. And to see this happen to AEW and NXT in the same week, it's depressing. You know, that we're, we're here to cover wrestling. We're going to talk about Dynamite, but it does suck that, you know, people are getting sick from both shows and, you know, truly they probably shouldn't be competing in the first place. And, and that's where we are. But let's go ahead and talk about AEW. The main event will start with John Moxley defeating Eddie Kingston. So the first 18 minutes of Dynamite, and yeah, I'm kind of combining this with that opening match. But in the first 18 minutes of Dynamite, they had references to Rikishi, Gangrel, Sports Entertainment, and Moxley selling his soul to the devil. Because remember, WWE and Vince McMahon are the devil, right? Think about the hypocrisy of using WWE character names to sell the opening match and sell the people in that match, only to then turn around one segment later and shit on the company in the following promo. Eddie Kingston is so much better and so much more creative than that promo, which is almost exactly what MJF was saying about Moxley during their feud, that he came from the world of sports entertainment, that he got things his way and blah, 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 and now he needs to button up and fight. Eddie Kingston's fire, his delivery, it's incredible. It's almost impeccable. It's a shame that he felt he needed to use or was told to use that crap to try to get over versus Moxley when there were myriad other things Eddie Kingston could have said to get into Moxley's head, including, hey, you think you're a brawler? I'm from Brooklyn. I'm from New York. I'm a real brawler. And I didn't mean to mention Brooklyn brawler there. That wasn't the point. But hey, you think you fought guys before you've never fought me and, and basically use that as the promo. Instead, He's crapping on sports entertainment and WWE and basically Vince McMahon by extension calling them the devil. And it's just like, really guys, like 20 minutes on the show, four references. And then they ended up referencing the big boss man later in the show. It's just sometimes it takes you out of it. And it's just, you're looking at it and you're like, why are you doing this? The match itself was brutal and hard fought between these guys. It felt like Japanese strong style more than anything else. It was really impressive. Both of them, they really laid it in. And it was cool to see Kingston get this kind of spotlight, even if it wasn't an emergency situation. Moxley winning with that rear naked choke was smart as it didn't hurt Kingston too much because he basically passed out instead of tapped out. Then all of a sudden we get the Lucha Bros and Ricky Starks attacking Darby Allen and Will Hobbs come out and beat down. And it's this big confusing mess that AEW's done before. This felt very Attitude Era finish not just WWE, but like a WCW in that same Monday Night Wars era where you just throw a bunch of stars in the ring at the end of the show and hope people get excited about what's to come. I did like the match, but it was something that was clearly thrown together. So I'm going to give them a break on some of the criticisms, but 
Eddie Kingston, man, like he is so much better than that. The, the promo was good because he's good, but the content of it was weak and he can do way better. He is so much better than that. The opening match on the show was Kip Sabian and Miro defeating Joey Janela and Sonny Kiss. This match was way too long. This is Miro's debut. He's basically wrestling in a tag match against Joey Janela and Sonny Kiss. And he's selling an injured ankle during the match. You had Aubrey Edwards reversing the tag she didn't see, but then allowing Miro three different times to interfere without being tagged. The presentation of Miro was great from his entrance music to his ring gear to his overall look. Somehow it looks like he's bulked up even more than he already was before. And ultimately he got the win in this match, which was key. But he is so much bigger and better and more important than what we saw here. He seemed like a independent wrestling version of Rusev rather than a reinvention of a guy as a big deal. So you're going to bring in Brody Lee with a huge gimmick. You're going to bring in Lance Archer murdering people. And Miro, not only is he going to debut in a tag team with Kip Sabian, which I'm not against because I think their back and forth is pretty entertaining, but he's going to have like an 18 minute match with Joey Janela and Sonny Kiss where he barely wrestles. When he does, he has to sell an injured ankle and then he just eventually wins at the end because of multiple interferences. This guy should have come in beat the crap out of people for multiple weeks. That's how you book Miro. That's how you book the former Rusev. Not like this. So this was a big failure for me. And people that are praising it or saying that it was acceptable, then I just think you kind of have your head up your ass a little bit because they made a mistake here with Miro. The next match was Adam Hangman Page defeating Evil Uno. It's weird because Kenny Omega continues to be on commentary during these matches. So if he doesn't care about tag teams anymore... Why does he keep coming out to do commentary for his former partner's matches? I think that is a storyline. If it's not, then it's bad booking, but I'm pretty sure it's a storyline reason. Uh, I like the Dark Order members standing on stage during the match. I actually think they should do that for every single faction member who has a match, maybe with the exception of Brody Lee. So I was disappointed when Evil Uno eventually shooed them away. Page one with the Buckshot Lariat as expected, and it was a pretty good match, but you know, it just felt like filler more than anything else. Uh, Next, you had Matt Jackson shitting on Tony Schiavone backstage. This a-hole douchebag version of the Young Bucks is way better than anything they've done so far in AEW from a character standpoint. This feels to me like the real Jacksons, and I hope they take it further with them like wielding the power of their positions, acting like they're above others, and throwing more money around. Because it is funny, and they sell it really well because, you know, maybe it's kind of what they're like. (laughs) At least that's how it comes off. Uh, We had a TNT championship match, Brody Lee defending against Orange Cassidy. I was in the middle of writing a bunch of negative notes about this match until Orange Cassidy went on his run. He hit all those cutters, the air raid crash, got a couple near falls. Those were all really great. Brody Lee needed to win this, of course, but it was strange to have him go over Orange when this guy just beat Chris Jericho two out of three times and factored into the parking lot fight significantly last week. I'm not sure I would have booked him for this match so quickly, but it ended up being good. I just think if you're going to build this guy up, why are you just going to feed him to Brody Lee? I guess we'll see what's next for Orange Cassidy, but if it's not a major feud, then all that work against Jericho seems to be for naught. Now, once the match was over, and again, this is another reason why it felt like filler, we saw the return of Cody Rhodes, or Cody, I should say. When the music hit, You knew it was him right away, but it made sense, of course, that he would be coming back to attack Brody Lee and Dark Order. But somehow now, despite 
no longer being the same Cody in some way, he has more pyro and uh, more fire for his entrance. Tony Schiavone's there screaming, my God, like he's orgasming because Cody dyed his hair with printer ink and is it's black hair instead of blonde hair. And now he looks like a vampire. And Tony Schiavone just, he can't believe it. Oh my God, it's Cody. He looks different because he's in a black suit or whatever, dark colored suit and he has black hair. Uh, it was a hot return because Cody made it a hot return because he ran to the ring, beat the crap out of people, put someone in a figure four leg lock. But I just found it hysterical the way Tony Schiavone in commentary tried to sell this as if it was like a guy who had been away for six months and had just come back. Cody was gone for five weeks. Stop being marks for yourselves and go back to being a mark for me. I mean, that's AEW being marks for themselves right there and really being marks for Cody. I know commentary has to put over the return. I get it. Don't criticize me for this. I understand they have to put it over, but go back and listen to Tony Schiavone seeing Cody with black hair. And it's like his world has been changed. It was really funny. We had a Brody Lee promo afterward. It was both good and strange. Just like Kingston earlier, the delivery and the aggressiveness were great, but the content wasn't that good. Like this guy just happens to have a dog collar nearby to make challenges for matches. And he knew Cody was going to come back. So he made sure that he had the dog collar. What are they going to do here, right? Cody versus Brody Lee a second time in a dog collar match, presumably for the TNT championship. If Lee loses, he looks weak for immediately losing the title back after six or seven weeks. If Cody loses, he just came back with a refreshed gimmick and will have dropped two matches to the same guy. I'll hold out the criticism because we need to see the match, how it ultimately plays out. I think it's going to be good because they're both really good wrestlers. But from a storyline standpoint, just a little confusing. Then you have Matt Hardy come out and cut a promo against Chris Jericho. This was rough. This was probably the roughest segment on the entire show. I'm actually scrolling back to make sure that I believe that. Yeah, this was the roughest thing on the entire show in terms of the execution, I guess, and just expecting more and getting less. Hardy basically just told the story about what happened on television over the last two weeks, reiterated that he's not cleared as they keep playing, I guess, into the fall from All Out. But yet, he's been on TV three weeks in a row, despite not being cleared to be there. Uh, Jericho came out. He brought back Sammy Guevara. And they're all arguing back and forth. Now I do understand, though, why they put Hardy with Private Party, because Mark Quinn, woof. I mean, awful promo. Just, he should not touch the mic. Isaiah Cassidy, marginally better. But this thing really dragged with those guys trying to cut the promo. There is no way in hell... Chris Jericho should lose to, uh, I almost said Orange Cassidy, Isaiah Cassidy next week coming out of the Orange Cassidy feud. He can't lose three of his last four matches. It just, I I can't imagine. The backstage segment later, however, with Chris Jericho and MJF was the opposite of rough. It was incredible. It was probably the best moment on the entire show. I'm so glad that they followed up the parking lot meeting last week. Obviously, Jericho is one of the best ever, and MJF is one of the best character workers today. So the fact that they're able to look at each other, both be pompous and smug, and think at first that they're just going to keep doing that back and forth and continue hating each other, but by the end, actually end up liking each other, it's a great moment, and it was gold. I mean, those two working together, I know Chris Jericho's in the inner circle. I know MJF is supposedly looking for a faction, or that's something that they mentioned last week. It would be really interesting if they did something Nation of Domination style and had MJF and Wardlow join Inner Circle only to eventually a couple months down the line end up taking it over 
and kicking out Chris Jericho from the group in a Farouk type of situation. I, I don't know that they're going to do that, but that would be some really great booking and it would be good for MJF to be leading a faction with some of those other guys, though, of course, certainly having Jericho with Sammy in particular, that's a match that's really important to keep. And I don't know that MJF as the leader of that faction would really make sense uh, in terms of all the characters working together. But a lot of those guys have shown comedic chops, Ortiz and Santana certainly, so maybe they would be able to make it work. Either way, Jericho and MJF, the more interactions, the better. Next, we had Tully Blanchard and FTR basically set their rules going forward. I was seriously confused by this segment until they explained it like a third time. Basically, all FTR TV matches are now going to be 20 minutes maximum, and they're going to be called a 20-minute brush with greatness, where it's a time limit match, and if it doesn't end within that limit, instead of being a draw, FTR gets the win. It's a strange gimmick for an old-school tag team all about fighting and bringing real wrestling back to want 20-minute time limits and default wins on their matches. And it's also strange, and we criticize WWE about this all the time. In fact, we just criticized them about it for Retribution. But why would WWE ever sign Retribution? Why would AEW ever just agree to allow these guys to get whatever they want in all their matches? Maybe now because they're champions, but they've already signed contracts. So what are they holding over AEW to get this to work? Are they just master negotiators? Is Tully that good? Maybe that's the case, but it just seems lazy. I don't like the idea of the 20 minute draw, uh, not draws, the 20 minute time limits. Most matches aren't over 20 minutes anyway, so it seems unnecessary. I don't know, but the best friends being set up as the number one contenders or eventual number one contenders coming out of that parking lot fight, that was obviously the right decision. They have a ton of momentum right now. They're a true face team. So them going up against FTR, maybe on that anniversary show, that would be a really hot booking. And then last here, we had Akaro Shida and Thunder Rosa beat Ivelisse and Diamante in a women's tag team match. This was a good match. I tried to find other things to say, to praise it or you know be negative either way. But I just came up short. Uh, it was good work with the women. The storyline feels like it's going in circles. And more than anything else, it feels like they have absolutely no storyline for any of the women on the show. You just had that Big Swole match against Britt Baker. We haven't seen Big Swole since. Britt Baker hasn't been seen since. Hikaru Shida hasn't had a feud against an AEW woman for the title in obviously a couple months because she just had that match with Thunder Rosa. And she's been fighting Ivelisse and Diamante. And I don't think either of them are signed. Where's the rest of the roster at this point? Where are all the other women to give opportunities? It's like they finally built up Penelope Ford for her opportunity. They put on a great match that was surprising. And now Penelope Ford's gone. Nyla Rose isn't there. Like there's just no women's storylines going on in AEW and they deserve heavy criticism for it. I don't believe it can solely be excused because of people being injured and absent. That's some reason. Yeah, of course. I'm okay if if you guys... If they otherwise would have had three women's segments per show, but otherwise they're having one or two and it's because their roster is shorthanded, that's acceptable. But but even the segments they're having are just like, here's a match. And it's like, okay, great. Good good match. Decent match. Uh, so whatever. The, the wrestling has improved. The in-ring work has improved. But that's in large part due to people that are not signed to the company, at least as of right now. So just like with NXT, I'm going to say it with AEW. Not a bad show by any means. They have had bad shows recently, but this was not a bad show. Just like with NXT, though, if the last two weeks were nines out of tens, 
this was down to that six to seven out of 10 range. It was a good show. I didn't feel like my two hours were wasted by any means, but it also wasn't the best wrestling television or the caliber of TV that I know that AEW can give us. So that is it for this week's show, breaking down everything that happened in NXT and AEW. As I mentioned, we will be back Sunday night, immediately after WWE Clash of Champions is over for a special instant analysis podcast. I know you guys love these shows, so be sure to tune in and listen to that. And then next week, our WWE show on Tuesday will have a very special interview with a multi-time champion in WWE. And then we will also have an NXT TakeOver Ultimate Preview later next week. So a lot of wrestling coming up. We're going to try to condense it in as few shows and as short shows as possible. But the only way that you can listen to all of it is to make sure that you are subscribed to the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. Wherever you listen to fine audio, wherever you're listening to us right now, hit that subscribe button. Don't forget we are on Spotify. You can listen to us on your Google Home devices, on your Amazon Echo devices. We're on Apple Podcasts, of course, where you can leave us a five-star rating and review. And for releases of every single episode, along with wrestling talk all week long, be sure to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. Thank you all for listening to today's show. We will see you Sunday night. Only one person left to talk to you. Thank you all for listening. Bye for now.